Welcome to the Yogic Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Powell. This podcast features in-depth explorations into the traditions of yoga, Sanskrit, Indian philosophy, and South Asian religions. Through candid conversations with scholars and practitioners, we will immerse in the latest and most cutting-edge research on all things yoga. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Yogic Studies podcast. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Ben Williams of Naropa University. As you'll hear, Ben is a friend and colleague from Harvard who is now teaching at Naropa in Boulder, Colorado. And it was great to learn more about his unique story and to dive into the rich and ever fascinating world of Shaivism and Tantra. Dr. Ben Williams is an intellectual historian focused on Indian religions and the history of Shaiva Tantra. He has received extensive training in Indian philosophy, literature, and aesthetics in Sanskrit sources. Ben received a BA in Religious Studies from the University of Vermont, a Master's in Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School, and completed his PhD in the Department of South Asian Studies at Harvard University. He currently serves as an assistant professor of Hinduism at Naropa University, where he has recently co-created a low-residency MA program in yoga studies that will launch in fall 2020, and which we talk about briefly at the end of this episode. Ben also serves on the Academic Advisory Council of the Muktabodha Indological Research Institute, which is dedicated to the preservation of scriptural and philosophical texts of classical India. And just as a side note, Yogic Studies is also proud to support the Muktabodha Institute by donating a percentage of sales from our online shop. As we discuss in today's episode, Ben's doctoral thesis is on revelation and the figure of the Tantric Guru in the writings of Abhinavagupta an eminent intellectual figure of medieval Kashmir. Building upon this study, one of his current research projects is charting the transmission of tantric traditions to South India that are indebted to non-dual Shaiva teachings and lineages that originally flourished in Kashmir. We had the good fortune to have Ben recently teach an online course for us here at Yogic Studies entitled YS107, Yoga and Shaiva Tantra, an uncharted history. So for anyone who is inspired by this conversation and you would like to pursue the study of these subjects further, I want to highly recommend this course. Uh, As you may well know, the world of Tantric Shaivism is vast and it can sometimes feel like a complex, even daunting web of scriptures and deities. And Ben is really one of those rare individuals who is not only an extremely adept Sanskritist and researcher, but as I think you'll hear today, also just a fantastic teacher, and he speaks with both passion and clarity. Listeners can receive 20% off the course with the promo code BEN20, that's all caps B-E-N and the number 20, and go to yogicstudies.com forward slash YS-107 to learn more. Okay, everyone, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Ben Williams. 
I'm here with Ben Williams. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to join the Yogic Studies podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. It's good to be with you, Seth. Yeah. How are you doing today? Are you, you're over in Boulder, Colorado? I'm doing well. Um, it's a bit of a lazy day, just kind of recovering from the spring semester, but um, life is good here for the most part. Good. Yeah, I know it's, uh, you know, a bit of turbulent times. Um, there's a lot going on and um, I'm grateful for you uh, to be here and excited to talk to you about some really rich subject matter. Um, I want to talk about your dissertation on Abhinava Gupta and his concept of the guru and a much just broader conversation about Tantra, Shaivism, Tantric yoga, uh, and a lot of the, the, the work and the research uh, that you've been dedicating your life to. But um, before we kind of get into all of that, you know, one of the things I'm doing in this podcast is to try to learn a little bit about the biographies and the stories of the scholar and sort of what has, you know, shaped your trajectory, how you've come to study, you know, the subject matter that you do. I think that's actually particularly fitting for you in our conversation today because your dissertation work was on Abhinava Gupta's autobiographical passages, right? Right. right. <laughs> how he himself kind of speaks about his past and his history that kind of led him to, to write a work like the Tantra Loka. Um, so if you don't mind, uh, maybe kind of in, in a shortened version, maybe tell us a little bit about kind of uh, your background, <clears throat> how you came to, you know, to write a dissertation on Abhinava Gupta at Harvard University. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to share a little my autobiography or a short synopsis of it anyways. Um, so I guess the, the path really <clears throat> began as um, when I was a kid, my, at a certain moment, my mother remarried and she remarried a, a devotee of a, of a meditation master, an Indian guru. And when I was about seven years old, I had the opportunity to actually have darshan or come before this guru, come before a presence. And I was actually just really curious to, to meet her. I'd seen pictures of her. And actually, I had my, my stepfather had a son who was my age who actually grew up in this tradition. And his name is Ram. So he has a, a Sanskrit name, an Indian name. And uh, we were kind of like new brothers. And so Ram, it was actually Ram who invited me to come meet this teacher. Hmm. And I remember when uh, he asked me if I would like to meet her, my first question was, will she be able to read my mind? <laughs> because <laughs> I just, I was kind of curious at that age about these capacities of, of this kind of mysterious being that I was about to meet. And Ram said, you know, instantly and very directly, yes. And his, uh, the kind of confidence in his answer, like made me step back for a second. And I meet, I kind of responded in kind as I want to meet her. <laughs> so this is, you know, seven year old kind of understanding of what I was about to encounter. Mm. And I went to this program where she was giving a talk. It, this was in Vermont, actually, she was on a tour teaching. And I remember entering the hall and hearing the sound of this mantra being chanted, 
And I just remember the atmosphere of the hall. It was, it was extraordinarily peaceful. And uh, at a certain point in the program, I was, I was in this Darshan line and, I, and actually I was going up with my brother and my brother introduced me to the teacher. And um, she, he, he said, this is my brother, Ben. You know, he was really excited about this moment. And she looked at me very intently and she just said the words, ah. And that was it. That was a complete uh, interaction. But the next day when I was in, uh, I guess I was in like the third grade or something, (laughs) I was telling my teacher about it, my third grade teacher. And as I was speaking to her, I just felt this like surge of enthusiasm coming through me. And I even remember actually, I could almost see this like light coming off of my body. And my teacher, as I was telling her about meeting this great being, and my teacher suddenly got very serious. And she said, Ben, this is very important. And I I was kind of struck by her her response to me. Mm. This is your third grade teacher? My third grade teacher, yeah. And I just remember her response very powerfully. I, that was kind of like a bija or a seed for what really developed in my teenage years. I didn't necessarily, I visited the ashram a few times with my brother, but I didn't really identify with the path. And there was even times when I would make fun of him for meditating and, you know, just as a, you know, kind of antics of being a kid. But it was really when I was a teenager that I had a number of um, intense experiences in my life. And I just started kind of found myself at the meditation center, which was actually in my stepbrother's mother's house. And so I had this kind of family connection. And I just started to have very powerful experiences in meditation. I started to go to the ashram. I started doing different um, retreats with this teacher. And by the time I was 23, I had a very powerful experience where I recognized her as my teacher. it was kind of like an initiation experience. It was very spontaneous. It happened inside. There was no formal ritual, but it was a a very powerful moment of recognition. Um, Okay, so I I see this time period in my life as this kind of honeymoon phase. I mean, I was definitely wearing pink colored glasses. (laughs) I I, I decided that um, moksha or liberation was... Um, the most important goal in my life, and it trumped everything. I, you know, I really gave myself to this, to this path, and I, ve- I felt very deeply what's sometimes described as mumukshatwa, which is the longing for liberation. It was like it was like a very visceral force in my life, um, and I had many powerful mentors, and you know, amongst the swamis in this tradition, and many f- deep, deep friendships with. Um, you know, spiritual brothers and sisters in this community. Um, how, how this turned into <laughs> writing a dissertation on Abhinavagupta, <clears throat> um, you know, a number of different practices were at the heart of my um, sadhana, my spiritual practice. Um, there was chanting, there was meditation, there was mantra japa, and there was selfless service. But the one, one practice which was less formalized was just studying texts and reading texts. And initially, I, know, I read all the texts written by the gurus of the lineage. And then I kind of moved on from there. And it was at that time that I first discovered 
you know, the writings of Mark Dikskowski and, you know, the Spandakarikas and all of those texts, mm. um, the Shiva Sutras, it, I kind of found uh, Shaivism in and through this expanding interest in reading and study. And I had this experience that actually really has stayed with me and it continues to stay with me in my research today. I was reading this book of one of the gurus and in the end of the book, the guru shares this very powerful experience that they had um, at this kind of moment, this kind of crux in their own sadhana. And it was, it was so powerful that it really just penetrated my heart. And I happened to be in Amsterdam. I was on a trip with my godfather. And I remember I walked outside after finishing this book and suddenly my, the, the entire, um, scene, the whole street scene and all of the trees were just enveloped in this radiance. And, you know, it was, it was like this warm pulsing glow that flooded my perception. And what was interesting is I received this experience, I had kind of this transmission from a book, from reading words. Mm. And I was there, I, that kind of gave birth to this question, which is, how does that kind of transmission happen? How can I actually receive, you know, and in a certain sense, communicate with the consciousness of a being just simply through their words? Um, and, you know, I didn't really realize it, but uh, that actually, that question came to really be at the heart of my dissertation in an interesting way. And we can talk about that. Yeah. So, Basically, I just had this kind of passion for study. Um, but then I, got, I was working for a clothing company and we manufactured in India. I got to go to India eight times as a part of my job. I was doing some designing and then I got into wholesale. And so during this time, every break I would have, I would, I would be on retreat, but this was kind of my full-time work. And what this did is it really introduced me to modern day India. And it was in and through these trips and developing friendships in India and just learning more about just being in India that I kind of fell in love with India. And I had this moment where because I was kind of good at sales, like I was pushed more and more into that and less into the creative aspect of the company where I, I was just like, well, what could I do? <laughs> How could I just do what I absolutely love the most, which is study these traditions as a career? And so this is, this is completely like, you know, what would be my dream vocation mm. based on like just the absolute passion of my heart. And I've, I thought, well, if, if I became, if I got a PhD in religious studies, I studied Indian religions and I became a professor, then I could, that could be a way to do this as a profession. Mm. Yeah. And so, you, you already, you, you knew of that as a, as an option because you had done a bit of religious studies as an undergrad, is that right? I had, yeah, I had actually. Um, I hadn't finished my undergrad, I kind of paused it to take this job, but I had taken a few courses as an undergrad in religious studies. And I, I kind of fell in love with the discipline a little early on. I really loved the study of religion. And I had a really good professor who was very quirky at that time. So I, I definitely had like a positive impression in some sense mm. that religious studies, the discipline could be my home. So, um, but what I did is I kind of took that foundation and then I re-enrolled at University of Vermont 
as an undergrad. To f- so I actually went back. I finished my undergrad, then I did a master's and a PhD. Mm. Um, and I really, I just want to share this piece of my journey because I think it's really important. Um, at a certain moment, I, I did mention this actually uh, in the course, you know, when I was studying at University of Vermont, I really decided to um, really become uh, have complete beginner's mind and really study this this discipl- this humanistic discipline on its own terms and and not have any kind of um, sense of already knowing things based on being a practitioner and being immersed in a tradition and one of the things I did is I you know in the study of religion I, I learned how to ask all of these very difficult questions about religious traditions and about religious communities and about the culture of religion and the practice of religion, including things like power dynamics, uh, things that the traditions themselves don't like to admit or even look at, Mm -hmm. um, such things as uh, finances, um, and just the way in which religious discourse can actually kind of shut down questioning, even not necessarily, I don't think there's any kind of um, way that any of this necessarily happens, but there are patterns that you study as a scholar of religion and you don't study it as a practitioner who you, you don't, who's trying to protect the tradition from critique. Um, And, you know, I, a lot of, uh, that's a kind of when I see it, I saw like myself taking off my rose color glasses and having um, a much more critical relationship to my own tradition. And actually, to be honest, seeing a lot of challenges in it, um, but never, never from being completely outside of it. Um, and so I, I, I'm really curious in the sweet spot. And this is something that at Neuropa University where I teach, we explore of being a scholar practitioner um, and taking both elements of that seriously, like actually taking being a, a scholar seriously and being a very, very rigorous scholar to the best of one's ability mm-hmm. and being deeply honest and true and sincere to that discipline and its sensitivities and um, not throwing the baby with, out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. you know, and actually finding a way to meaningfully connected to what animates these traditions. Yeah, one of my professors from Humboldt, I think I've shared this with you before, her name is Karen Harris, who was very um, influential uh, for me in my early uh, days of religious studies, who comes from uh, a similar background and community as you. She, She would speak about this as approaching these texts and traditions with both eyes open. Hmm. Mm. the eye of the scholar and the eye of the practitioner and mm. and each of those eyes together kind of gives a fuller and more complete picture mm. um, so it sounds like you caught that bug and we're now becoming invested in receiving academic training you received training in sanskrit language so that you could read these texts and study these scriptures in their original language and that this then p- kind of powered you through to go on to the PhD. And you ended up doing your PhD at Harvard University, which is, of course, where we met and became friends and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you and I have shared um, academic 
advisors and professors um, in both Francis Clooney and Anne Monius, who unfortunately passed away very untimely about just about one year ago, if you can believe that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, how did then all of this sort of crystallize and how did you then um, develop this dissertation project um, on Abhinavagupta, his portrait of a guru? Sure, yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I kind of had my eye on Abhinavagupta. In fact, um, I remember as an undergrad, I, I had a professor, Jonathan Gold, who's currently at Princeton, and I, t I told him I was interested in uh, Kashmir Shaivism at some point. <laughs> Um, which is itself kind of a misnomer, but I was using the term then. And he, he, I remember he paused and he, the room got silent and he just said, Abhinavagupta. <laughs> and I, I said, yes, he's a very prolific author in that tradition. Um, you know, Abhinavagupta is uh, somebody who has been the center of a lot of research and interest across disciplines within the study of religion and within Indology for years. So I was always interested in him, but at the same time, as I was studying Sanskrit and beginning to try to read his works, to be honest, I was also very intimidated by him. Um, he's, mm -hmm. he's a very difficult author to read. Um, he's extraordinarily technical and complex um, and nuanced thinker. And a lot of his texts are, are difficult to work with. You need to have a kind of uh, a vast range of knowledge to appreciate what he's doing. So... I felt this challenge, but at the same time, it was also like a beautiful challenge because it, it ended up requiring me to really go deep in my study of Shaiva Tantra, really go deep in my study of Indian philosophy, and also study literary, Indian literary theory uh, deeply, just to be able to appreciate what he was doing. The topic of the dissertation shifted throughout my PhD, and as anyone who's done a PhD, probably has had a similar experience. <laughs> um, and initially, I was interested in the relationship between his Shaiva philosophy and his poetics, his theory of beauty, his aesthetics. Mm. Um, it's a question that a lot of people have asked. And Guy Levitt, who was a Sanskrit teacher, one of my most deep uh, Sanskrit teacher who really influenced me the most at the early stage of my career, an amazing Sanskritist, he once told me that to actually do a project that I was proposing, and it was a project he himself was interested in as well, um, you would have to do a PhD in literary theory and a PhD in Pratyabhijna or Shaiva philosophy um, to actually do it that project justice. Mm -hmm. And that itself speaks to who Abhinavagupta is. I mean, he's yeah. somebody who didn't- so Maybe, can, yeah. why don't we just back up a little bit? Tell us who is Abhinavagupta <laughs> and why, why is he so significant within the history of Indian thought, Indian intellectual history, and in particular, uh, kind of this world of, of Tantra and, and Tantric Shaivism. So who, who is Abhinavagupta? So he's an author who flourished in Kashmir, um, between 975 and 1025. Um, we know a lot about him because he wrote a lot about himself. He has a lot of autobiographical excerpts scattered throughout his works. They total over a hundred verses. Um, he's a Shaiva master, a teacher, 
and an initiate within Shaiva Tantric lineages. Um, specifically, he's identified with a lineage called the Trika, um, which is a goddess-centered tradition that focuses on three goddesses. Um, but he also synthesizes that with another goddess Shakta tradition. Shakta means devoted to Shakti, the goddess, which is called the Krama. And that focuses on Kalas and Karshani as a kind of supreme goddess. And he, what he, what's amazing about this part of his corpus and his writing is that he's also just got this encyclopedic knowledge of the history of Tantra. And both of these goddess traditions are kind of within a broader religious identity of Shaivism. So he is a Shaiva, um, but when you kind of get to what is the supreme deity, what is the supreme mantra, it is goddesses for Abhinavagupta. Um, and yeah, what he does with this encyclopedic knowledge is he finds a way of organizing this vast literature into a coherent, integrated whole. And he actually describes all revelation, including non-Shaiva revelation, like even Buddhist revelation, as being a part of one agama, one scripture, one kind of revelatory process. And what he does is he, he tries to take this massive universe of scriptural teachings and show that it's all a part of a organic, coherent, internally diverse whole. Mm. And so in his uh, Shaiva writing, as, you know, commenting on scriptures, um, writing this compendium called the Tantra Loka, which you mentioned earlier, um, one of the reasons he's so valuable is simply because in and through his citations, we have tons, we have a window into the scriptural world many, of many texts which are lost. Another is that when he interprets them, he does it with a kind of philosophical skill and a kind of um, visionary uh, insight. Another reason why he's important in this realm is because if, when you read the style of his writing, um, he's so deeply uh, attuned to beauty that there's certain moments where he just kind of shifts registers and he just starts writing very poetically, even within this text, which is not in that genre. So, okay, that's, that's, that's kind of like his foundation tradition. He's a guru in that tradition. So he's a part of um, many lineages. One thing to say about him in this as well is that he's famous for having studied with many teachers. Mm. Um, and this kind of approach of having many teachers was actually potentially controversial in his, in his world, in his, in his uh, religious and intellectual world. There's evidence of this, that to, to have a guru and to abandon the guru, to have an initiation mantra, an initiation from that guru and to abandon it uh, is a, a major transgression. Um, and yet what he does in the Tantra Aloka is he really forwards this ethos of a kind of eclectic education and going from one teacher to another as one moves through subtler and subtler thresholds of revelation, uh, inspired by the power of grace, anugraha. Um, but even though he, th it's like kind of abandoning, quote unquote, lower revelation, there's also other moments where, and I argued this in my dissertation, where he, he's not content to remain within the boundaries of a single transmission lineage. 
and you see this in how he represents his own life as a student. He's constantly um, studying across traditions. And, you know, he says he studies with Buddhists. He studied with Jains. And at, at a certain point, Alexis Anderson, describing his knowledge of Buddhism, says it seems like he took a degree in the subject. I mean, mm. He's got this fascinating uh, expertise in Buddhist philosophy that is another reason why he studied. Um, so, okay, that's, I've said a lot. Uh, well, I let, could, me, let me just pause you for a second. So, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, today we often hear the phrase Kashmir Shaivism, right? And, and, and I heard you reference it uh, earlier, although already pointing to some of the problems with this phrase. Yeah. Uh, what do people mean by Kashmir Shaivism? How does this relate to Abhinavagupta and, um, you know, his, his tradition? Usually what people mean is his tradition by the term. Um, and so they, they, you know, a very famous text is the Shiva Sutra uh, and the Spandakarika. So what they're referring to is non-dual forms of Shaivism that flourished within Kashmir. And Abhinavagupta is an, is an extraordinary proponent of those traditions. And so is his disciple Kshemaraja who wrote the Heart of Recognition, Pratibhigna Hridaya. So it's this kind of collection of texts that is often described as Kashmir Shaivism, um, these non-dual Shaiva philosophy and, and, and you know, Shaiva yoga as well. Um, the reason that's a misnomer is because there were many other forms of Shaivism that flourished in the Vale of Kashmir mm-hmm. um, during his life and before his life. And one tradition that was even probably more established than the non-dual Shaiva tradition was a dualistic one mm. called Shaiva Siddhanta. Um, and so to say Kashmir Shaivism and think that you're somehow exhausting all of Shaivism in Kashmir, the reason it's a misnomer is you're taking one, uh, one form, one specimen of Shaivism, and you're kind of generalizing it to encompass all of Kashmir. What you see in Kashmir is a vast spectrum of forms of Shaivism with the dualistic Shaivism called the Shaiva Siddhanta on one end, and then, you know, Abhinavagupta Shaivism on the other end, and many in the middle, um, like texts like uh, the Netra Tantra or the Swachanda Tantra, uh, these kind of Bhairava texts that focus on Bhairava as the central deity. That's kind of a middle ground um, between these two traditions. And there's, there's many other forms as well. There's, you know, there's more popular forms of Shaivism that's not initiatory. Um, and it's, so it's, it's basically simplifying a, a diverse religious world. It's oversimplifying it, the term, uh, in its yeah. usage. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Then what about um, the, the term trika or trika, the tr- trika right. Shaivism that is then sometimes also used to associate with Abhinavagupta and his, um, his tradition or and we'll also get to this more, but kaula. So kaula and trika. Sure. Are these more emic terms that Abhinavagupta himself would use to describe this? Well, the, the, so the trika or trika, I guess it's trika because it's a short E. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but I always say trika. Um, the trika uh, is a tradition, a goddess-centered tradition, it focuses on three goddesses. Its earliest um, text is the Siddhi Yogeshwari Mata. And it's a tradition that actually 
went through many shifts and transformations before Abhinavagupta's life. But the second earliest text that we have is called the Malini Vijayotara Tantra. And that work is what Abhinavagupta bases his entire project upon. He really chooses that text and by extension, this tantric ritual system and kind of cosmology and background as his, as his kind of central home or identity as uh, an initiate. And, but you introduced another term, which is kaula. And what we have and what the kaula marker is, it is a term that comes from the tradition. Um, it's, it marks a major transition that these goddess-centered traditions went through, not just the trika, but other ones as well. And the transition in, into a kaula form or a kaula mode is a transition of kind of leaving behind a lot of the focus upon ritual, leaving behind the notion that the deities are external to the practitioner, and introducing forms of yogic practice and gnosis or kind of awakened forms of knowledge that uh, internalize the deities and focus more and more upon sudden and spontaneous forms of realization. And so with this term, we could have a form of the trika, like the Siddhi Mata or parts of the Malini Vijayotara Tantra that are not kaula. Why? Well, for the Siddhi Mata, because the, the primary purpose and world of the text is performing these tantric rituals centered on these goddesses and these goddess mantras. And that is a lot of that is kind of transformed in the kaula forms of the trika. <laughs> and the way it's transformed is very interesting. Um, and there's a term for this. We see this in Buddhist Tantra as well. There's many ways of describing this transformation. One is that is uh, internalization, not only an internalization of the deities, but internalization of the rituals. So what was once an outer ritual that you had to perform as an initiate is now a metaphor for an inner process that unfolds within your consciousness. Um, and so that's what we could call the kaula turn. And what Abhinavagupta is doing is interesting. He's, he's a kaula trika. He's completely uh, absorbed that turn. But he's also taking that kind of, and that's also the birth of non-duality in this traditions happens within that turn. Mm. Um, Can you say a little bit more about that? So that turn, so yeah. there's, an, there's an earlier formative development of Shaiva Tantra that is a dualistic philosophical tradition, uh, heavily ritualized tradition, the Shaiva Siddhanta. And they focus extensively on very detailed and complex external rituals. Is that right? Right. That's, co that's correct. And, and that liberation happens through ritual action primarily. Mm. Exactly. And so then you have texts um, that center on Pairava, uh, which is a more ferocious or, you know, form of Shiva. And that introduces... Um, other elements to the ritual universe, less of a focus on ritual purity, which um, we find in the dualistic Shaiva Siddhanta. But nonetheless, in those traditions, if you look closely 
at the logic of the traditions, they still assume that the deity being worshipped is external to the practitioner and that a lot of the purpose of the rituals, and it's ritual heavy, there's also forms of yoga, um, is about um, pleasing that deity and in and through pleasing that deity, uh, receiving some kind of transmission of power or liberation. Now, then you have a focus on goddesses that emerges. And in those early goddess traditions, these goddesses, once again, pre-Kaula, are ex seen as external to the practitioner. And there's, they have their own unique retinues as well. Um, they're, not, they're actually surrounded by semi-divine female beings called yoganis or dakinis. Mm-hmm. And these yoganis are, and the central deity uh, really become a focus for the practitioner. And in these traditions, these early goddess traditions, the main goal is siddhi, not liberation. And these yoginis are actually external to the practitioner. And, and that means that the encounters with them where, where you offer them blood and, you know, this is in a very, very interesting kind of uh, t- a ritual universe that's really going against the mainstream of Indian uh, social norms. Mm-hmm. Um, they're dangerous. They're actually dangerous because... Uh, if the ritual doesn't go well, you, you're actually, you could risk your life. And to, because they could actually devour you, these, these external beings. Um, so in order to face them, you have to be a vira, a hero, a tantric hero. You have to have extraordinary courage. Um, and it's, these rituals happen in very liminal places, like crossroads, abandoned houses that, you know, like... Um, cremation grounds, places that just people don't normally go to. They see them as impure places. They happen at very ominous times, like the dark, the darkest fortnight of uh, the month. And, and it's this background, which is this kind of visionary cult, which is in the background of the, the Kaula shift. But with the Kaula shift, it emerges out of the goddess traditions. Uh, and, it, and it also has some connection to the pre-tantric forms of Shaivism called the Atimarga mm. and the, uh, the Kapalikas especially. And Sanderson has shown this, um, the Kaula's relationship to the Kapalikas. That's, an, that's just a sidebar for fun. Anyways, mm-hmm. okay. Um, can, I, can I pause just for a second? Yeah, yeah. Because now we're getting deep into the weeds, which is where I want to go. But I'm just thinking for our listeners, it might be helpful to just zoom out a little bit and throw a um, perhaps a simple but uh, but yet challenging question to you um, to just kind of get us to think a little bit more broadly about this world and what's going on here in the background for Mm -hmm. Gupta and his Mm -hmm. interlocutors. Um, So, you know, Ben, if you were flying on an airplane, imagine non-COVID times right now, and maybe you were going to the AAR even in November and we were going to go meet on a panel <laughs> to discuss yeah. this in person. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, an ideal world. Um, and you were sitting next to a stranger on that airplane, and they, they uh, struck up a conversation, and they asked you, you know, what you do, and you say, oh, I'm this professor at Naropa, and uh, I teach, uh, and I'm, I'm a scholar of Tantra. Well, first of all, they, they, I, mean, I guess they might say, oh, I've heard of that. <laughs> but... Um, Great. Well, if they if they followed up and said, uh, "Oh, that sounds interesting," what is that? 
how would you describe Tantra just sort of to the average lay person? Sure. Well, the first thing I would tell them is that's a very dangerous question <laughs> to ask me, but okay, this, the, there's a lot, it's, you know, this is something I teach. I teach a course on Hindu Tantra. So um, I've, I've been trying to find creative ways to write, introduce the outlines of this tradition. Um, there's a key, you know, key things that distinguish a tantric tradition from a non-tantric tradition. Um, one of those is initiation, but not, so these are initiatory traditions. That means they're not meant just for public practice open to everybody. Um, in fact, the scriptures of these traditions are, can only be heard in the presence of people who are initiated according to the scriptures themselves. And an initiatory tradition means to some extent that they're, and this is a technical term, esoteric. Um, there, there's an emphasis on secrecy. Um, and, you know, someone might ask why. And part of the reason why is that they were really, they included practices as we've touched upon that were very transgressive and that could be misinterpreted. But they also saw themselves as, as new teachings, as revelations that were very powerful. And so initiation was this deep, purifying rite, which was also liberating. This is another novel tantric idea that initiation isn't just a rite of entry into a community, but it's rather a kind of fundamental uh, shift in your very being, and it kind of secures liberation in your future. It's a liberating initiation. It's called Nirvana Diksha. And when you say these, these things are unique to Tantra, um, as, as opposed to what would you say within the Indian? As opposed list? to um, pre-Tantric traditions, so the traditions that predated the Tantras, which you know, emerged in the 5th century CE or somewhere thereabouts, and also more public forms of religion. Um, so when I say different you know, between initiatory and public, that's, that's one distinction you can make. Um, in terms of the early part of the tradition, they did go public in interesting ways. Um, so different than, um, different than the Vedas, which a lot of the Hindu Tantra traditions look back on, different than yoga and Sankhya, or different than Patanjali's yoga, different than um, non-Tantric traditions that center on the deity Vishnu, and non-Tantric traditions that center on the deity Shiva. Mm. So you can have non-tantric Shaivism and tantric Shaivism. Mm. And so liberating initiation is really like a major distinguishing factor. It kind of, it's a, it's a novel idea that emerged with this new corpus of scriptures. So that would be one thing I would point to that's really important. Um, another thing is just a new body of scriptures. I mean, this is another very key element. There's suddenly these new revelations. In Shaivism, they're taught by the deity Shiva. That's how they're understood. And they are seen to be um, more powerful. Um, they lead to a more definitive form of liberation. And they supplant earlier scriptural traditions. And so this is important. In later centuries, you find different authors try to harmonize the tantras and the Vedas. Mm. But that's much later. In early Shaiva Tantra, um, there's what I call a new scriptural identity because you have a new body of revelation 
and this revelation, you know, this is a part of so many religious traditions, how people live with revelation. This revelation is really what, the, there's different streams of scriptures, and that defines which, which deity is at the center, which form of the deity is at the center of your tradition, which mantra you receive, um, the, the nature of the liber, uh, liberating initiation that you undergo as an initiate. Um, and what you do on a daily basis. A lot of like your kind of daily ritual life, a lot of that is charted in these scriptures. And they're seen as divine injunctions that people live with. This is, so the importance of a new body of scriptures. This is a very clear way of distinguishing classical tantra from neo-tantra. Because mm -hmm. in neo-tantra, it's not clear where these practices come from. And you can always ask somebody, show me the texts, <laughs> you know, like what, what are the actual scriptural sources? What are the traditions? You know, what are the lines of transmission and do they actually go back to these classical tantric traditions or not? And usually there's people, there's not people living with scripture in the same kind of way. So living with these revelatory traditions, what scripture is, of course, there's many different tantric theories and Abhinava Gupta's is one I'm personally fascinated in. Yeah, that was an important point you made in the intro to the yogic studies course, I think. And, it, you know, very clearly trying to delineate, you know, what scholars often refer to as neo-tantra today, which sometimes draws on these scriptural source texts, but in often cases does not. Right. Uh, Right. And differentiating these contemporary usages of the term Tantra or the adjective Tantric for, you know, a variety, for a host of different types of practice modalities today and differentiating that between, you know, quote unquote classical Tantra, or at least the, the Tantra that derives from these, from these Tantras, these scriptures that you study. Mm. Right. right. Um, you know, because today, you know, I don't have to tell you or any of our listeners, you know, when the term Tantra arises, there's a host of associations, right. you know, that, that come up. Um, just like with yoga, we might be linked to postural yoga. And today, right. for, for, for the general public, Tantra is associated with some sort of uh, sexual practice or kind of a, you know, sexual uh, couples retreat at Esalen in California or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I, I'll I wonder just if you could real... just speak, speak to that a little bit of just, sure. you know, why what you're talking about is, is, is quite different than that sort of neo-tantra. So I've, I've touched on the fact that um, often it's not tied to a, a kind of scriptural tra lived tradition where embodied scriptural tradition um although there might be references to text often the interpretation and engagement with those texts is idiosyncratic it's not steeped in the kind of um in the depth of these embodied scriptural traditions um a, one other thing about tantric the kind of core uh identity marker for a tantric tradition is the importance of identification with deities i didn't mention that yet I think that's another way of distinguishing from neo-tantra. Um, identification with deities is at the heart of tantric practice and not just Shaiva tantra. Um, and also use of mantras. Um, in fact, the use of mantras is so prevalent that Alexis Sanderson, instead of calling it 
Tantra, he, he avoids the word because of all of the things it invokes that you just mentioned. Mm. It confuses more than it reveals. So let's not even use the word anymore. You know, that's one approach. He describes it as the tradition describes itself as mantra marga, the path of mantras. And so... Well, that's, that's a really important point because that is, you know, as Sanderson has shown, the more preferred emic term that the texts use to describe the tradition itself. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's how the traditions describe themselves. They mantra use the word marga, tantra the to... Mantras, right? Yeah, they use the word tantra to, to speak about... Um, their scriptures or their sacred texts, but path of mantra is how they speak about their tradition. And even Buddhism speaks about it as mantra naya, the way of mantras, or mantrayana, the vehicle of mantras. Mm -hmm. And then we often hear vajrayana as well, right? So yes, that's how the tradition would describe itself. That's another reason to describe it that way. But um, we have this category, and so I think part of the educational process is to kind of rehabilitate it and say, we, we should be able to use it critically. We should be able to make these, dis, these uh, discernments. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways of, of distinguishing it from Neo-Tantra. I'm not a scholar of Neo-Tantra, um, and I'm not a practitioner of Neo-Tantra, so I can't speak to the uniqueness of that tradition with great authority. Similarly, if one were to like, speak about postural yoga, and if and conflate it with the with yoga in general and see like imagine people in like the fifth century doing what we see in a in a power yoga studio right um that would be that would be a mistake but in order to actually do justice to postural yoga it's also important to understand its history and its lineage and i actually feel the same way about neo tantra i don't think we should just mm. say that it's something we should offhand just uh, debunk or, or, or see as inauthentic. I think it has its own history. It has its own place. Um, and it could be a very powerful practice. The, the issue is not in the tradition and the practice of Neo-Tantra. The issue is in, and not all Neo-Tantricas do this, but the issue would be to think that that practice is exactly uh, an a exact representation of the tradition itself of classical yes. tantra yes and claims to right claims to you know uh authority of a particular text like the vigyana bhairava or something like that right to then prop up you know uh, practices that aren't even found for example in the text and so if you're you know conflating things in a way you know, there's there's a certain type of appropriation that can that can take place in that in that framework if one is not careful. So it's not about uh, delegitimizing these neo tantric practices or postural yoga, as you mentioned, but about getting clearer of what the sources of those practices are. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then you could find, you know, fascinating histories in in those more modern practices that have their own integrity and their own value, you know, and their own problematic nature, just like any tradition, right? Um, absolutely. That's my approach. In, uh, you know, in the course, I can actually kind of, you know, mention this in the course that I taught on the Yogic Studies platform, I do look at sexual rituals in classical Tantra. They are there. And I think it's their existence. The fact that we do have sexual rituals is a big part of why the conflation has happened. You know, <laughs> there sure. is, it's not to say, and, and Shaman Hatley has a wonderful article on this. Like a big part of recent scholarship has been to differentiate 
and and part of that has been kind of not focusing on the sexual rituals and that's an important corrective because they're not central they're not really the key thing but kind of like oh sorry go ahead no but but they are present and so you know he kind of proposes let's actually not stop studying them let's continue to study them and by doing so we can really understand them in the original context and then even have more of an ability to not make this conflation. Yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way about asana just to continue that parallel. Yeah. You know, yes, of course. Asana is there in the pre-modern history, the texts. In fact, there's probably more there than we even acknowledged 10, 15 years ago in terms of scholarship. But at the same time, asana has still, if we are honestly investigating our sources, you know, postural practice of yoga has never been the central ingredient, the central unga or method. Um, it's never sort of occupied that role that it that it does today, where it's so inflated that it's basically become synonymous with yoga itself. And the same with the sexual right, in, in, you know, in tantra, right. and in, in perhaps even more exaggerated context. Right, right. Yeah, that's a nice parallel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Okay, so we were talking about, you know, this emergence of these new tantric scriptures, some of the, the categories, I think, that you've identified, some of the elements which distinguish tantra from uh, Vedic and other more popular public forms of religious practice in kind of the first millennia of common era in India. You have this, these huge shifts and new scriptures focusing on deities and mantras and initiation. And then you were talking about, you know, then this important kaula shift within all of that and this interiorization of some of those external ritual rites. And that all of this is sort of in the background for Abhinavagupta hmm. and shapes, you know, um, shapes his worldview, but also kind of gives all the unique flavors and ingredients, you know, that he synthesizes in a text like the Tantra Loka. Is that right? That's, yeah, that's well put. You know, he, he's writing from a Kaula perspective of having gone through this shift. But one of the things that marks his, um, his style as a, a religious thinker is inclusivism. And so he never wants to, he always wants to have a domain where these more ritualistic elements and even potentially these transgressive rites can be pursued for people who it would be useful for. But what he does is he sees them as kind of indirect methods. And what he sees the kaula offers, this is how it informs him, is the most direct method of awakening. And so even like he sees value in the Vedas as well. He just sees it as kind of having a very, very limited domain. Um, so that's one of his, that's part of his gesture, you could say. Mm. It's this kind of deep inclusivism, but it doesn't mean it's pure pluralism. Not all things are equal, mm. right? Um, there's, there's definitely paths and practices and, and modalities of awakening that are more direct, that have more immediacy and that connect you to the animating core of reality um, and allow you to become established there. So you can have this more inclusive view. Yeah, that's beautiful. So your dissertation that, that uh, 
that you wrote for Harvard, I think you defended in 2017, is that right? That's right. Yep. Is titled Abhinava Gupta's Portrait of a Guru, Revelations and Religious Authority in Kashmir. And um, just last night, I was reading through it again, which was a real pleasure. It's, it's, a, it's a beautifully written dissertation, which is not always the case, <laughs> but it's really aesthetically pleasing to read in addition to um, you know, extremely well-researched well um, and, and, and thought out. Um, one of the things I think that you do really well in this dissertation is you identify, um, you know, this particular model of revelation of scriptural authority that you that you locate in Abhinava Gupta's writing that you call the Kaula idiom, mm -hmm. um, and in particular, kind of, you know, you start with this, this line of questioning of trying to make sense of some of these, as we said earlier, these autobiographical passages in Abhinava Gupta's writing. And for kind of your average reader or listener, you might not think anything about these moments in his text where he's talking about his life, his story, even his parents, his teachers, his education. That might see, strike, you know, the modern person today as, um, you know, pretty, pretty normal or just kind of anecdotal uh, tidbits. But within the landscape of, you know, medieval India in terms of a previous model of Sanskrit literature and our, our idea of, of the role of the author, these really stand out as you highlight mm -hmm. um, compared to perhaps an earlier Vedic and, you know, Puranic model of distancing the author and the personality of an author from the text and trying to highlight this more transcendent and eternal model of authorless texts that the text is sort of you know the author is getting out of the way of his or herself and allowing kind of just the revelation to come through so there's something much more human this human agency that's happening in the writing of Abhinava Gupta that you that you highlight and try to make sense of mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that and you know what is what is the Kaula idiom um, as you describe it sure so, um, you know, one of my interlocutors is Sheldon Pollock, actually, in his scholarship. Um, he has a, a famous article where he looks at this model of revelation in the Vedic tradition um, that's articulated in a tradition on um, Vedic interpretation, a tradition that interprets the Veda called Mimansa. And it's this tradition's interpretation of the Veda, of the nature of Vedic revelation, as authorless and beginningless, that really becomes a fundamental paradigm for scripture and for religious authority in India. And because the Vedas are kind of, there's this consensus that they're these foundational scriptures uh, and they have, they carry such weight across, you know, what comes to be called Hindu traditions. Um, this, this paradigm that they're, they're not composed by human beings that they're, they're beginningless, they don't even have a beginning in time. You can't locate them in a human world or in a particular historical moment. That, that is actually where they derive their authority, is their timelessness and in, in their kind of um, impersonality. Mm. That, 
he, Pollock argues, really informs a lot of the practice of many other traditions, even ones that are not closely tied to the Vedas, that they just kind of take this on. And it's, it's his way of explaining why a lot of Indian authors don't write a lot about themselves, that it's not that they don't have interesting lives. It's not that the, these things are negligible to them. It's just that they're conforming to a certain understanding of revelation and religious authority and authority in general. You could say authority of voice that is based upon this paradigm. And so it's, it's a response to a lot of critiques of Indian history that say that it's in Indian authors were ahistoric or they didn't have historical consciousness. <laughs> and yeah. And that's uh, Hegel, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's a really interesting response and to that. And it's saying, no, of course they lived in history and they were historical beings. That's insane. They're just creating a practice of knowledge that um, was following this paradigm. And so then when you have that background and then you suddenly uh, start reading Abhinav Gupta and you suddenly see him, you know, the way I think I say it is like, it seems like, he can't shut up about himself, <laughs> right? Right. And um, how is that possible? So this was like, this was my core question. And, and what the Kaula idiom is, is it simply another model of revelation. It's another model of religious authority mm. that emerged in and through the tantras, but really with this Kaula turn that we've been discussing. Uh, you don't see it as much in the earlier tantras. And it's an emphasis on a person-centric model of revelation, that revelation happens in and through individual masters, mm. that it's not something that stands apart from their experience and knowledge and awakening. It's actually a feature of their awakening. And so um, what I argue is, it, and I find some precedents in my dissertation of authors that make first-person claims of enlightenment and also authors that describe the circumstances of revelation, the kind of the conditions of their revelation, um, little narrative bits. You get these little slight autobiographical, you know, Abhinavagupta amplifies this tendency, but you see it in the Krama tradition, you see it in um, Somananda and uh, the end of the Shiva Drishti, one of his texts, that's one of the gurus in his lineage. Mm. You see this interesting long biographical account, maybe written by his disciple. And what I argue is that it's a completely different model of revelation. And it's, it's not so much about saying, oh, these, these masters are, should write about themselves as individual humans, as individuals who are really exclusively identified with themselves as an individual and feel special because of that. You know, it's not like a, I'm reading a modern self back into these traditions. Mm. In, in our modern sensibility, what it means to be authentic is to be an individual often and to, you know, to innovate as an individual. And that's a part of a deep modern sensibility. And we, we really emphasize individual freedom and all these different things. That's an extraordinary generalization, apologies. Mm. But nonetheless, I just want to make this point you know, Abhinavagupta is not writing about himself just so he can tell you about himself as a unique person. He's rather charting, this is a key part of my argument, he's charting the conditions within which this revelation can not only uh, emerge, 
but also be sustained. And he's doing it by, by identifying himself as a Siddha, as a perfectly realized master. And it's in and through the vehicle of these masters and this person-centered lineage that this, these revealed traditions are meaningful in the first place. If they're just you know, fixtures of an institution, if they're just external scriptures that kind of guide and command your life from outside of you, if they're not a feature of your living awareness, then it's, it's not the power of, it's not the full power of the tradition. So this tradition requires a kind of awakened lineage of masters and, and it requires extraordinary conditions for those awakenings to happen. And by narrating the conditions, you can actually teach um, people in the future how to recreate those conditions and how to reenact that revelatory tradition. That's, that's basically this kaula sensibility. But what that means is that the, the tradition is, is actually very delicate because you could have breaks in lineages. Uh, you don't have this kind of you know, like the Catholic church, right? You don't have these major structures to support it. And this is very different than the Shaiva Siddhanta and other tantric forms. It's, it's a, that's why I call it a Kaula idiom. It really emerges in and through these Kaula traditions. And it makes sense of how Abhinavagupta represents himself as, and also his, uh, his own cultivation, his own story, even a story about his mother, which mm -hmm. seems like a very personal detail he immediately turns it into a didactic moment and says it was losing his mother when he was very young that, uh, that actually prepared him to have this deep, to be free from this fundamental attachment and completely dedicate his life to Shiva. So into this tradition. And so it's not just to tell you what happened to his mom because he wants you to know about him per se, right? It's, it's about a story of awakening. It's an enlightenment narrative. And you, you see this also in, in Tibetan Buddhism, which is much more autobiographically robust as a tradition. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there. That's a lot. Beautiful. Um, I'd like to read this quote actually from, from your text, from the dissertation. You write, a close reading of the form, content, and didactic power of Abhinavagupta's autobiographical passages suggests that the ideal guru should not only be a fully enlightened Kaula master, but also schooled in the finer points of Indian scholastic discourse and a connoisseur of Sanskrit poetry. In short, a cosmopolitan siddha. What can you tell us a little bit about Abhinavagupta's ideal guru? Why is it not only necessary to be fully enlightened, a Kala master, but what is the role of Indian scholastic discourse and even Sanskrit poetry in Abhinavagupta's conception of an ideal guru? Sure. Yeah. So this is, um, this is actually exactly where I was about to go. So it's perfect <laughs> segue. Um, you know, it's, it's not just that Abhinavagupta is embodying the Kaula idiom or this understanding of uh, revelation and transmission of knowledge and tradition, um, he's also updating it and, and developing it in really interesting ways. And he's doing it, the ideal guru, what I, what I argue is that it, 
we can learn about it by the way he represents himself. Um, because he doesn't just represent himself as a Kaula master. He also represents himself as somebody who has dived deeply into the, the universe of Sanskrit poetry and Sanskrit plays and theater. And in fact, we, we know this is the case, not only from his autobiographical passages, but from his writings. He wrote, he actually contributed to these disciplines of literary theory and dramaturgy. So the theory of poetry and, um, you know, verbal art, and also the theory, the theory behind theater. He, he not only contributed to them, he made major discipline transforming contributions to both. And so we know this, that he, he wasn't content to just be a master in these esoteric traditions. He was also an esthete. He was also a connoisseur of all these art forms, these very robust art forms of Indian literature and Indian theater. And he was also a philosopher. <laughs> uh, he, he studied Buddhist philosophy, as I mentioned. He studied Indian epistemology or Nyaya and, was, and mastered that. And this is embodied in these other texts he wrote where he, you know, kind of jumps into the genre of Indian philosophy and specifically in his non-dual philosophy called Pratyabhinya, recognition. And so he, when he describes himself, he describes himself as someone who is steeped in these things. And this is where we, I really feel like he is to a certain extent innovating his Kaula tradition. Um, because if you look at some of the, the earlier sources, they actually look askance at certain forms of intellectual cultivation. They see them as a, a net or a snare or a distraction from the path. And although the Kaula tradition does open one up to the sensual and to beauty as a part of practice, so there is a connection there with literature, it, we don't see we don't see this level and depth of study in that context. And so what I argue is that what, what the didactic part, the part that's supposed to teach us something about how he represents himself, is that the ideal Kaula, Kaula guru, and I'm sure he recognizes this isn't a path for everybody, but he, it's a path that he's taken and that he finds really compelling. And it opens up tons of questions, like what is the role of, of beauty and art in religion? And what's the relationship there and spirituality? What is the role of philosophy within one's uh, religious life? Uh, Abhinav Gupta is somebody who thinks that those things are important to think through together. And they're important, a part of important elements of an ideal trajectory for the cultivation of a master. And so I, I think I say at one point in my dissertation, like the ideal Kala guru should not be a stranger to the theater. <laughs> a bit, and this is the idea that it's a very cosmopolitan model of mysticism. Mm -hmm. And it's a very highly intellectual one. And uh, this, is, this is really, I think, what I, what I think is valuable about this is it really gets to the heart of why he's such a fascinating figure and why, why Abhinavagupta has continued to garner so much interest as this, fast, as this unique luminary in Indian history a thousand years after his life. Hmm. Now, these are the qualities that he's describing as the ideal guru, but are they also the qualities of the ideal sadhaka or student? You also talk about this, you use this lovely term, the tantric sahridaya. 
or the connoisseur of reality. Was this something that also the aspirant, the disciple, the practitioner is also ascribing? Should they also be the sort of connoisseur of poetry, of theater, and so forth? Yes, and I think he, he's very, he, it's not a restricted prescription. It's not to say this is the only path. I th- you know, he's, he's, he's actually very liberal in his understanding that there's different comportments, there's different approaches, there's different paths. And he, he has an appreciation that, you know, the path of philosophy might not be for everybody. You can see that. You know, he writes, he writes simple forms of the Tantra Loka and the Tantra Sara mm. and then the Tantra Ochaya for audiences that are less interested in the complexity and nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, his disciple writes the Pratyabhinya Hradaya, which really takes this really technical philosophical system and makes it into a much more accessible spiritual teaching. So what, what you have is an awareness in this tradition of, of many audiences and many, many trajectories and none that is exclusive, right, or the only one. However, I, I can't help but think that because he's so enamored with knowledge and art and beauty and philosophy and you know traditions outside of his own basically what i argue is he's really enamored with learning <laughs> he's mm. like he's really enamored with um exhausting all of the learning opportunities in his intellectual environment in his world mm. he leaves no stone un- unturned you can just see he's somebody who's on fire with learning and so I, I do think that, that there's this kind of um, prescriptive force that comes through his being. You know, there's, the, like there's, a, um, there's this inspiration that comes through his being. And you mentioned the uh, tantric saharadeya. I mean, this is really a, a connoisseur of reality. That, that actual translation of the saharadeya um, in a tantric context comes from Mark Ikskowski. Mm. He described that and it was really beautiful a connoisseur of reality. What does that mean? Well, what it, what it is, is um, this term sahradaya, which is a beautiful term, is a term in literary theory and in, in the theory of plays. And it describes a sensitive audience member who is subtly attuned to all of the cues in the art form and for whom the kind of the intended uh, power and meaning of a play or an art form fully blooms within their hearts. And it's because they have the ability to share their heart with, with what's arising. Mm. They're one who's like able to share their heart or they have this capacity, this empathy. And like, sim- there's a certain level of training, you know, yeah. that is sort of necessary, a prerequisite to be able to fully appreciate a great work of art, a play, even a film. Right. Yes, yes. And, and there's a, a part of that training is a sensitivity, a receptivity, and the ability to immerse oneself like freely in the artwork completely, and not just kind of hold oneself back from it. There's this deep participatory understanding of relishing art. And so what that that's beautiful in its own right. But what Abhinavagupta does is he suggests that that should not just be limited to art, that we can take that same connoisseurship 
and actually become a connoisseur of, of our life and of this world and of our, our life in this world. That every facet of reality, every experience can be relished. And here, uh, when he defines the Sahradeya, it's somebody in, this, in the Tantra Loka, the Tantric Sahradeya, so the connoisseur of reality, not just of a, a literary work, right? Um, he describes it as the ability to experience the cool touch of sandal or um, extraordinary music and connect to the kind of underlying current of bliss, ananda, within that. Mm. And in the commentary of the Viveka, Jayarata cites all, a number of verses on this topic from the Vijnana Bhairava. And so here, the Vijnana Bhairava is a very Kaula text. And here it's like, it's the, these are actually yogic practices of opening oneself through the senses and experiencing the beauty, not just as a kind of personal, in a personal grasping kind of way, but in a very rarefied way in which you can kind of penetrate to the essence of the, the beauty and experience this kind of bliss that is liberating, even though it's in direct dialogue with sensual experience. Mm. And so, okay. yeah, and it's, so it's really compelling and it's something I really um, admire about the path that he lays out is that, you know, there, there's this invitation and it's suggested throughout his works to, to actually become a connoisseur of reality, to find beauty in more and more of your reality. And why? Because the whole thing is permeated by Shiva, by, you know, by God. <laughs> At the end of the day, you know, like that's, it's, it's, all, it's all actually filled with sublimity, if that's a word. <laughs> mm. And so this, to me, this kind of relates to this other point about having perhaps multiple teachers, multiple gurus. You alluded to this earlier, another kind of unique facet of Abhinava Gupta's life story, if we can call it that, his autobiographical passages. He alludes to having studied with many teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I think you, you write here, I have a quote, that Abhinava Gupta's awareness lotus has expanded in virtue of studying with many of the best gurus. It's this that made him an attractive place for the goddess Sri to take her seat. And, and you say uh, that this is a view that is not without scriptural support. And Abhinavagupta cites this verse from a scripture called the Sri Mata, or also known as the Shat Sahasra Sangita of the Kubjika corpus of Kaula scriptures. And that's a mouthful. Um, but this beautiful verse that kind of highlights what you call this, his liberal vision of religious education. And so I'm going to read this verse. Just as a bee in search of fragrances travels from one blossom to the next, so too a disciple in search of wisdom should go from one guru to the next. Right, right. So that's, that's quite interesting, though, and maybe challenges some of what I don't want to generalize, but perhaps people's understanding today, this notion of that you just find one guru and it's kind of this all-encompassing teacher of every single aspect of one's kind of uh, spiritual and worldly and, you know, material life of every, you know, all-encompassing. But that's, 
not exactly the model he presents, or at least of his own path, and it, and is I think um, illustrative of how he was this master in all these different disciplines, and because he actually studied with different teachers from different traditions. Hmm. Yeah, and he um, he always describes himself as a bee, or he, it's a very common way he describes himself. I'm actually writing an article on this, his use of this metaphor. So just as a bee goes from flower to flower, you know, uh, in search of ever new fragrances, uh, Abhinavagupta himself, as he tells us, went from teacher to teacher, lineage to lineage, tradition to tradition. Um, I will say a couple of things about this, though. One is that... Um, when you look at the context of that verse, it's, it actually is it's cited twice in the Tantra Loka. It's in a context where it's about moving from uh, lower revelations to higher revelations. So part of the idea of, of leaving gurus is finding gurus that have more definitive um, teachings, uh, a more kind of liberated teachings. And so, um, and following this kind of inner impulse um, sometimes described as Tarka. So the, yeah, one I want to come back to that after this. So yeah. Yeah. Tarka. Great. Um, so one, and another point too, just to say that it's not just, but let's just go to tons of gurus, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's what he's saying here. He does give special preference, preference to Shambhunata. And he really ascribes his awakening to this one guru. And so you can, you can kind of have a sense here that he has a root guru as it's sometimes called. Mm. Um, and so, and he does, he, when he speaks about Shambhunata, it's different than when he speaks about other gurus. However, there's another moment in, in this discussion where he, he gives us fascinating image. It's really important. He, and there is a notion that you should take what you learn from every teacher and you should, um, you should see it as a supplement to an ever expanding vista of understanding. And knowledge, and he even says you should take all of these streams and take the most intuitive elements of all the teachings you encounter in this liberal exploration of knowledge, this very bold exploration of knowledge, and you should synthesize it into a great ocean of knowledge, and then you should immerse yourself in that. So <laughs> it's interesting. Like it, it's not to say that oh, just go because the danger of saying oh, just take on many gurus is you never stick with one long enough for that guru to be able to challenge you. <laughs> and I think that's a very common feature, right, in, in the spiritual communities today. And then, but it's also a corrective potentially of another problem, which is people who get completely um, sucked into a single community and they kind of shut down the questioning process and they shut, they don't, look, see the value and power of other lineages and teachings. Um, I think Abhinavagupta is a rare being who can hold both. He can, you know, he can, he can really, I, and I also think that something happened in his relationship with Shambhunata that is really at the core of his own awakened self and his own identity as a Siddha master. And so there's a very beautiful organic way in which he, he embodies this liberal ethos of studying broadly and widely with many teachers. And he has this very uh, exclusive devotion to his own teacher. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, thanks for um, uh, highlighting, illuminating that a bit further. 
Um, you mentioned Tarka, and I want to talk to you about this a little bit. And let's let's think a little bit about um, you know what is the role of yoga and yoga practice within Abhinavagupta's thought within his uh, his system. You know, we mentioned this kind of cosmopolitan siddha and liberal religious education involving, you know, the you know Indian scholastic traditions, uh, logic, Sanskrit poetry, drama. So, what about yoga? So, I, you know, in a really beautiful moment, teaching moment in your course, I think at the end, when the final module, you kind of walk the students through a close reading of chapter four, a section of chapter four of the Tantra Loka, Rabinavagupta actually has a, a subtle critique of Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga, the kind of classical eight-limbed yoga system. And as with other things, Abhinavagupta doesn't simply dismiss it or throw it out, but he, he kind of tweaks it a little bit and he kind of gives it the, the non-dual Shaiva um, uh, flavor, let's say. But there's this important ingredient in Shaiva tantric yoga systems, this Anga of Tarka, right, as you highlight, um, that's obviously not in the eight limbs of Patanjali and is something that he kind of um, really highlights as this missing piece. Mm. So why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about that, uh, that passage or what, what would be Abhinavagupta's view of um, you know, Patanjali yoga? Sure. It's a, it's a very fascinating critique of Patanjali and it's, you know, very explicitly taking Patanjali on and in a certain way, including him as well. So as you mentioned, Tarka is a, a, a limb or an Anga. Um, I like to translate Anga as support of yoga <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that can, that is seen in by Abhinavagupta as the highest or the ultimate support of yoga. Really, all other angas are secondary. It's the primary one. And what it is, is <clears throat> the ability to have this deep, discerning intuition about reality and also about oneself, one's own understanding, to see where one is deluding oneself, where one is stuck, and also to see the direction to go to actually make concrete progress in the path of awakening. And so it's just this kind of inborn uh, intuition and sensitivity that allows one to have deeper and deeper and deeper realizations of this liberating understanding of reality. And so what the critique of Patanjali is um, that the other angas that Patanjali teaches, right? So the yamas and niyamas, <laughs> asana, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with these, right? And have studied these. That the, the issue with them is that they don't actually do what they're meant to do. They don't actually liberate one. What they do is they just help you develop tarka. They help cultivate this, this capacity. And it's really tarka that is the liberating support of yoga, mm. right? And so interestingly, um, Somdev Vasudeva, who wrote this book, The Yoga of the Malini Vijayotara Tantra, uh, and is one of the leading scholars in the world of tantric yoga, he actually sees 
a connection between Tarka and Patanjala Yoga, actually. Mm. He sees, if you, if you read the introduction to the Ashtanga system, the eight supports of yoga, uh, it says that it, what does it do, right? It gives uh, rise to this uh, lamp or this light of knowledge, right? And that culminates in Viveka Khyati, right? Glad you went there because I was going to bring this up. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, it seems there's a parallel here between the Shaiva Tantra category or, or you know, method, if you will, of Tarka and then Patanjali's Viveka Khyati, this discriminative discernment, exactly. which, as you just said, Patanjali you know, lays this out up front. Like, this is the point of Ashtanga Yoga is to cultivate right. this discriminative discernment to be able to, you could say, you know, see reality clearly. Exactly. So, so, so how are these different then? Sure. It has to do with what that reality is that you're discerning. And so in potentially system, you're discerning your true nature, your true self as the Purusha, as this witnessing consciousness that's eternal and unchanging. And you're discerning that from all of the things you've been identified with, which is this kind of world of manifestation, including the mind, the body, the intellect, and, and matter and materiality. And so it's, you're kind of uh, just like the swan is separating water and milk in the metaphor that we see for Viveka, the Hansa. Um, you're separating your true self from all the things you're not. You're uprooting this fundamental ignorance. Now, that's not what Tarka is for Abhinavagupta. It's a similar action in a certain way. It's this discerning wisdom. But uh, what you're discerning is something completely different. What you're discerning is um, yourself as the all-pervasive consciousness that is not separate from the manifest world, but is its dynamic source and ultimately one with it. And this is because they have a different view than Patanjali. Mm. And this actually, so that's, that's one thing. It's like, what are you tarking <laughs> with your tarka? <laughs> right. What are you Viveka Kyatiing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this actually is a, this is a really good point because it gives us a chance to say a little bit more about the critique. The part of the critique is that what tarka can do is it can actually, since it's a function of this, of, your own awareness's capacity to experience its all-pervasive nature, it has access to that. But the problem with all of the other angas is that they're based in the body, in action, and in the mind, and in the breath, in the prana, right? And they're all operating with the assumption that that is what we are. Like we've identified completely with this kind of body-mind complex, right? And we were deeply identified with the kind of flow of our energy and our life force. And if, we, if that's kind of what we've crystallized as who we are, who Seth is, who Ben is, mm. and then we're practicing from that understanding and trying to access our all-pervasive nature from the assumption that we're already just a fragment of reality, from the assumption that we're separate from the, you know, this consciousness which imbues the entire world and is the dynamic creative source of it, then you can never go from that limit, limited identification and somehow 
practice your way into this uh, liberating realization. It's like you, you can't actually start from a misconception of who you are and work your way towards that. And so what Abhinavagupta has is a top-down approach to yoga. This is, is, is you know, you know, he has other critiques of yoga and yogis who he identifies with um, people who are just seeking supernatural powers. That's a separate conversation. Mm-hmm. But in terms of yogis who are practicing these anga systems, he's basically saying, don't think that that's enough without tarka. What, but then he wants to include it. So he says, look, what that does when you really practice all of these things leading to samadhi, it stills the mind. It, it kind of, it, it removes all of this turbulence and then that creates the staging for Tarka. And that Tarka isn't just Viveka Kyati, according to Patanjali. It's not just discerning the static consciousness. It's, it's a process of ever, ever maturing and expanding realizations that see oneself as um, consciousness as what, what could be described as like Shiva consciousness, like identifying with the core deity at the center of this tradition. And that deity is an agent of all cognition and all action. It's a, a deity that is, there's a deep continuity between it and creation and manifestation of the world. And therefore it's an, an inclusive or an all embracing mode of realization um, and it's not about escaping the world. It's about in, uh, embodying one's universal nature that is already um, that is already embodied as the world or as the universe. Mm. So, um, very well, very well said, Ben. As I hear you, I hope so. <laughs> describe no, uh, really, um, very clear and articulate. And as I'm listening to that, I. I still actually think, I think in terms of the tool of Tarka or Viveka Kyati and how that fits as the kind of telos of a yoga sadhana, I do. I still think in terms of the the tool or the anga, it's really quite similar in Patanjali yoga and in Shaiva yoga, but it's the view and the metaphysics that undergird one's view of reality, one's view of self, body, nature, and so forth, that is totally different. And that's going to shape, you know, and provide the context through which the yogin or yogini is engaging in that practice and, and, and as so shift the outcome and the affect. But in terms of just like the function of this, that the other, you know, limbs of yoga are there to serve and support to kind of actualize either Tarka or Viveka Kyati in order to see reality clearly. Although what that reality consists of is, couldn't be more different in terms of metaphysical and and ontological statements. Yeah. That process seems still quite, quite similar. Would you say? I think the process is similar and this brings up a really good question to explore um like how how important is view um the pro is true i think the process is similar and it may be that even the development of tarka in tantric yoga systems this is speculation might be indebted to potentially in this sense mm. um that's just speculation but yeah so it's it's a similar process the question is how important is view in terms of one's fundamental orientation to yoga 
interestingly, as, as you know, in the Hatha yoga traditions, view isn't as important. It's actually put into the background, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you have a kind of fluidity of views. You have adoption of Vedanta at certain moments. You have other things. It's very eclectic and it's much more about practice, right? Yeah. In these tantric traditions, view is very, very important. And the integrity of view is very important. And actually this comes out in the critique because it has to do with what is the status of the world? And what is the status of embodiment? Is it something that we need to fundamentally be free from and escape even, <laughs> right? Or is it something that we should be free for to participate within? And how does that play out in the very logic of our practice? And so a great example of this is his critique of um, Pratyahara. Mm. The logic of Pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses, is you take your awareness away from sense objects. Mm -hmm. You draw them inward. And this goes back to, you know, the kind of core insights that it's the senses driven by desire, lusting after objects, that is the one of the fundamental problems and you need to master the senses, right? This very mm -hmm. deep yogic teaching. Mm -hmm. But it's often understood based on a logic of renouncing the world and renunciation that the world itself is dangerous or something that one has to, uh, that one will inevitably get lost in, that the senses are kind of uh, wild and out of control. And even sense experience and sense enjoyments are dangerous. I mean, you know, like they're described as like crocodiles that you, when you try to swim across the river, they'll devour you. There's all these different ways they describe the sense, sense sensuality, right? Now, what Abhinavagupta's critique is, is that that's just a fundamentally misguided notion. He says it's like trying to fasten a knot that's already unbound. That's the metaphor he gives. Mm. And the idea is that the senses aren't, the sense and sense objects aren't an obstacle to realization. It's one's understanding of them that can allow them to either be liberating or contracting. The sense, sense objects and sense, sensual experience isn't intrinsically uh, obfuscating. It doesn't intrinsically uh, cause you confusion or befuddle you or lead to pain and suffering. And it's not intrinsically liberating. It's about how you understand them. It's about how you see the world, actually. And if you have the right understanding of the world, then you, you can actually see that whatever the mind lands on, whatever the senses become aware of, is actually a part of this extraordinary play of consciousness. And it's, it's not something that one needs to renounce because it can actually be and it can serve as a means for awakening. And there's some really, really beautiful uh, theologies in the background here about the goddesses of the senses and um, how consciousness relishes itself in and through its phenomenal display. And there's even a lot of resonances around theories of art and beauty as well. But, but basically what you could say just to a modern practitioner that this I think it makes a lot more sense to our own modern sensibilities that you know, we're not about to take vows of renunciation and leave the world behind. We're not about to leave our family life behind. And we also are, you know, embrace a lot of our experiences of being in the world and the imminence of this world. So I think this is why uh, these teachings are 
very apropos in this moment. Okay, and just one point, Jayaratta has this beautiful quote that wherever the mind goes, he, he gets it from this tantra, the uh, Swachanda Tantra, wherever the mind goes, it's not a problem. It can go everywhere. You don't have to restrain it to one point. You don't have to draw the senses in and bind it and fix it to one point of concentration because there's, there's actually nothing that can trouble it because everything is fundamentally made out of Shiva. Everything is composed of Shiva. Everything is auspicious. If you have that understanding, nothing will be an obstacle to your yogic practice. And so this is all a very elaborate way of saying for these traditions, for Abhinavagupta especially, worldview is pivotal. It's pivotal. Mm. It's really important. It, it inflects how you approach everything about your practice. And so if you really start to integrate this inclusive, this imminent understanding that, you know, liberated reality is not somehow apart from this world that we live in, right? Um, outside of it, then it might actually shift how you practice these angas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of um, some of the dharanas, these yogic concentration practices in the Vigyana Bhairava, things mm -hmm. like, um, you know, taking the moment when one sneezes <laughs> and using that sensual experience of actually entering into it fully and experiencing the kind of full consciousness of Bhairava, you know, being directed through that direct taste and experience of a sneeze or mm -hmm. a, pe a beautiful piece of music or mm -hmm. a gurgling stream or something like that. Yeah, or Rather even fear, like, like an elephant's coming, or great moments of powerful fear even, right? Yeah. Any experience within the palette of human, the range of human emotions and cognition, I think... You know, just shortly, I, I think one thing just to say to that, of course, there's then this danger, right, of then saying, well, I can just do whatever I want and I'll just, you know, everything I, is just this play of consciousness and Shiva. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, those earlier ascetics and yogis didn't know what they were talking about, trying to escape from the world. I'll just kind of dive into it fully. And there can be a certain kind of naivety in that approach to the other extreme as well, would you say? Absolutely, absolutely. And this, I think this is the part of the danger of adopting these tantric traditions, which have these orientations and are more inclusive of like our embodied reality is that you miss um, some of a key elements of the preliminary training that these traditions expected, but don't often spell out. Part of that training is a degree of mastery of one's own mind and uh, the capacity to actually concentrate for extended periods of time and the ability to be within the flow of experience and not get lost in it. And I think, you know, Abhinavagupta teaches, and you see this also, I think, with transmissions of like Dzogchen and certain forms of Tantric Buddhism to the West. Um, he, he teaches a very subtle form of practice that's very advanced um, he does include all these other practices and, and says you really need to use your tarka and figure out where you're at. Don't prematurely adopt these practices. It could be uh, totally detrimental to your development. And so 
I, you know, I, I think this is a big part of the transmission of these traditions to the West is that they become reinterpreted and they, they, they're stripped from their original context and they don't have these preliminaries and they don't have this foundation. And, you know, this is actually speaks a little bit to how, how does yoga function within tantric traditions? Well, you re I really think for all of those dharanas, all of those meditative exercises in the Vijnana Bhairava, th that's assuming you already have a number of yogic capacities online and that you already have a significant degree of mastery of your own mind. And without that caveat, people can dive into these practices and it, they don't end up being liberating at all. And I think one way of checking it even within our own experience is just having greater and greater self-awareness of like, what is our relationship to the sense objects? Is, is there a sense of, are we, do we, are we addicted to them, right? Do we need them? Or is there freedom in the experience? You know, are we able to actually repose in a deeper contentment that's not contingent on getting what our senses want? Um, and yeah. so I, I a think a different can, orientation towards it's a, it's uh, a different orientation. And, and that's another thing that can get lost in translation is um, always it's about these experiences being windows to bliss that's intrinsic, that's inherent to who we are and to the fullness of who we are. So it's not, it's never about kind of stimulation for its own sake, you know, mm. And yeah, well, Ben, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating. We are definitely starting to wind down at the end of time here, but I, I really, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't get to ask you about your current teaching at Naropa University, uh, where I think honestly, a lot of the things that we've talked about today that are sort of envisioned by Abhinava Gupta, perhaps in some small micro way, this idea of this kind of liberal uh, religious studies, let's say education, contemplative models of learning, you know, like a honeybee traveling from one teacher, one class to the next. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you guys are trying to model at Naropa and um, you've just recently developed and launched a new master's program in yoga studies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I just uh, finished my third year at Naropa University, and <clears throat> we have a really interesting religious studies department, which uh, is started off with a deep focus on Buddhism, um, but has, has included the study of many traditions within, um, within an educational model that's contemplative education which means it's a study of the traditions and the humanistic concern about their philosophies and histories and different theoretical approaches to them based on religious studies, but also um, practicing them in the classroom and, and integrating that into the educational process, like not just a third person relationship to them as artifacts, but um, developing a first person intimacy with these traditions. Um, and that's within a pluralistic university. So it doesn't have what Abhinav Gupta has, which is an overarching Kaulatrika cosmology, you know? Mm -hmm. So our students are like bees, but they don't have a kind of uh, often a lot of coherence. Mm. So that's just one thing to say. Yeah, it's, it's although, and it is a, one of the only, if not the only accredited Buddhist universities, 
right Buddhist inspired yeah Buddhist yeah. inspired but 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 the students come from a variety of backgrounds of course yeah and a lot of, very few of our undergraduates are actually Buddhist um, so but yes it does embody a lot of the other elements of Abhinav Gupta we have a great um, department in poetics and poetry um, which was founded by Allen Ginsberg and has deep roots to the history of American poetry tradition, especially the beat tradition, and was really a site for a lot of the development in, in, of these traditions. Um, and also a number of other, you know, disciplines. So one of the disciplines though that you just referred to earlier is yoga studies. And it's interesting, Naropa actually has had a yoga studies BA for about 10 years. That means a bachelor's degree in yoga studies. And it was actually the first BA degree in yoga studies as a discipline. Hmm. And so when I was hired, I was hired to teach in religious studies and courses on Hinduism and Tantra, as we've been discussing. But I've also been teaching in this yoga studies BA program. And part of my job description was to develop a master's program. And this has been an intention and something that's been in the works for almost a decade at Naropa University. And it's coming to fruition this fall. We're launching this fall and I'm really excited about it. It's been a labor of love. Um, and it's, it's really trying to take the field of yoga studies, the emergent field of yoga studies and all of the best scholarship and the extraordinary um, forward movement within this kind of new field that's budding and bring it together with a deep study of um, Buddhist yoga actually because we have this connection with Buddhism, it's kind of an understudied area of like, what's the history of yogic forms within Buddhism? Mm -hmm. And also uh, tantric yoga or yoga in these tantric traditions. These are kind of different things that I think distinguish this master's program. They're areas of specialization that we go deeper into. It includes a training in the Sanskrit language um, and a training in religious studies as an academic discipline. So it can lead to PhDs and doctoral work. It could also just be an enriching training for people who are already well-established as teachers or who are offering teacher trainings in different global yoga communities. Um, and one other thing I wanted to mention about it. Oh yeah, it's low residency. So it can be done from anywhere in the world. We have two retreats that are like nine day retreats, but besides that, it's a three-year program. You can do it while you're working. And so we really wanted to make it accessible and open this kind of training to more people. And the last thing I'll say about it is that it includes a study of the history of meditation or meditative forms of yoga and also the practice of those traditions. And so um, we're really, I really see it as a space to kind of for an emergent curriculum in, you know, potentially as a foundation um, what I describe as potentially is mind training, where we're not just learning about it, but we're actually practicing it. And then adding to that, you know, meditative practices from this really rich history um, and doing that, you know, while critically uh, having a critical relationship to these traditions as well, um, based on the sensitivities we discussed earlier, you know, looking at all kinds of issues, including gender, including the historical transmission of these traditions to the West, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just a little bit of um, what I'm excited about with the emergence of this new program. Wow. Sounds amazing. And uh, is enrollment still open for that program for this it coming is, fall? Yeah. It is. Um, it is still open. It is. Yes. And where, where yeah. can our listeners go 
to visit online if they'd like to learn more about this uh, new uh, yoga studies program? Um, we have a web page. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact URL is off the top of my head. That's but... okay. We'll, we'll figure it out and we'll, we'll be sure to link to it in the awesome. show notes. Perfect. For episode. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a web page, and you can. And I'll just say too, um, uh, I had, I had the fortune to visit Ben at, at his Naropa office a couple years ago when the AAR was, was in town in Denver and it's a beautiful campus and an incredible history really just of that university uh, going back to the seventies. Right. Yeah. 1974. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so very exciting new program um, which kind of speaks to, as Ben was saying, kind of some of the, the momentum of this new academic field of yoga studies, but some very unique things as Ben highlighted that, that are unique to this Naropa program. So for folks who are interested in that and might like to study with Ben directly, um, we highly recommend that you check that out. All right, Ben, well, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for um, this really rich and stimulating discussion. Um, to kind of wrap things up here, I thought I'd actually just share this little quote from the end of your, uh, I believe this is the preface to your, or the, the acknowledgements to your dissertation, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, you write that this dissertation's attempt to shed light on the nature of a perfectly accomplished master, Siddha, is similar to, in the words of Abhinavagupta, trying to use a firefly to illuminate the sun. So thank you for, in some small way, helping us to try to, you know, illuminate this, this vast thinker and um, important figure in the history of yoga, the history of Tantra, that of Abhinavagupta, and for, you know, sharing with us your work, your research and teaching on uh, Shaiva Tantra. Thanks so much, Seth. Uh, it's been great to be with you. And yeah, I just really appreciate the conversation. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, Ben, we'll be in touch soon. Uh, please take care, okay? Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.